sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's episode is a very special one. I'm joined by one of my friends and renowned performance coach here in Ireland, Adrian O'Brien. So it's a bit different to the usual episodes we have with other competitors on. Adrian has a lot of experience coaching high-level sports teams and also some professional athletes in individual sports as well. So he has a really good overview of a lot of different athletes and what it takes to achieve a high performance in different disciplines. So I hope everyone can get something from the episode. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends and subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. So here we go with another episode of Inside Position with Adrian O'Brien. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you, Tom? How are you keeping? Great to be on. You being a coach, trying to increase athletes' performance all the time. So when you think of high performance and someone who's kind of firing on all cylinders, what allows someone to have that kind of flow state? That's a great question because like from the outside looking in, I think that, you know, especially with my background in strength and conditioning, we tend to try to put things into silos. For example, you know, we know that there's a lot of dynamic moving parts to performance. And, you know, a physiotherapist sees something and they'll see it from a physiotherapist's eyes and a strength coach sees something and they'll see it from a strength coach's eyes. And maybe a sports psychologist sees something and they'll straight away will hone in on the mental aspect of it. And a skills coach will look at an individual skill. But in reality, it's a combination of all those things that come together. And, you know, realistically, it's an organism that's performing at the highest level. So I think to feel that it's or to, to make an assumption that it's any one capacity would be reductionist. So I'd always look at a four coactive model of, of, of preparation. So the, the technical, the tactical, the physical, and the psychological all merge together. I won't say an equal part because there's never one, it's always a dynamic interaction, but they merge together for high performance. So in, in a roundabout way, it's very hard to pinpoint any one thing. Because when I think of my own self, I'm always trying to kind of self-diagnose my performances after I've had them. And it can be tricky. But for me, it always feels like when my mind is clear and my mental bit, it's almost like the mental game is the glue that kind of holds the other bits together. But then when I think about it a bit more, it's like the mental game is good because I'm on top of the other bits as well. Mm. So it's hard to review it afterwards. It's so many different complex bits that put together having a clean performance. Like, Yeah, and, and I think a big part of that as well is establishing your biases as a coach and as an athlete as well. Like, I'll give you an example. When I first started BJJ, and to be clear on this, I was a very average blue belt, but I always thought so, it was so much about the physical. And then I'd go training and... You know, and I think a lot of people make this mistake. They overemphasize the physical aspects. And in reality, it, it's it's a skill sport. And I would yeah. get crushed by people who are completely out of shape, office workers who were in no way conditioned. But when I rolled with them, they'd crush me because they were so technically and tactically better. So even though I was really fit and I'd smash out on the airline, I'd smash out in the gym, I would get wiped on the mats a lot of the time simply because yeah. the other people were far more skillful than I was. So I had my biases towards that type of training. And then, like, it's easy to get fit. You know, let's call it a spade a spade. Getting fit isn't hard. You know, I was ever getting skilled and improving your technique. Because, like, what is technique? Technique is skill under pressure. 
So if we if we drill a certain technique on a one-on-one controlled environment, that's one thing. But putting that together, you know, in competition is completely different because now that skill set is exposed to a higher level of pressure. So it's easy to run after the the physical component, but in reality, you know, I, I, I definitely think being awareness is key and being aware of your biases as a coach and as an athlete to objectively sit back and say, right, you know, this is partly physical, partly technical, partly tactical, and partly psychological. And it's the combination of, of all four that would give you, I think, more of a, a rounded high performance model. And how do you balance then the training between let's say the tactical, the skill, and then the physical, because maybe at the lower levels, I felt like the skill is the most important. But now that I'm kind of competing at a higher level, I feel like, well, actually, I have the skill. And it's more about the little tactical bits to use the right techniques. And then the physical as well, like you need to be in tip top shape, because you're going against other high level athletes. So how do you balance like with people you're coaching, the tactical, the physical and the skill side of things? Yeah, like I suppose, when we look at it, the purest form of any sport is the sport itself. So if we look at a continuum from general to specific, you know, the the, the, the fastest, the best way to get fast if you want to run faster is run and sprint a lot, yeah. okay? So the best way to get better at BJJ is to roll and to train a lot. So when you roll and train a lot, you develop the physical capacities, but you also start to develop the technical and the tactical components as well. So the actual sport itself and spending time in its purest form is, in my way, the best way to combine all four. In my opinion, it is. Whereas, again, I think we like to isolate them too much and we like to go and do our gym session and then do our drilling session and then sit down with a sports psychologist. And and I'm not saying it doesn't have a place, but I certainly feel that the purest form of any sport is the sport itself. And then for physical training for jiu-jitsu, coming up through the years, like I was always thinking, is it better to do, let's say, sport-specific preparation where you're kind of exceeding the demands of the sport and then you're able to do it easier when you're doing it? Or would it be more strength and conditioning to balance out the movements? So let's say I do a lot of forward crunching in jiu-jitsu. Should you do a lot more, let's say, posterior exercises to open things up? So like, how would you balance out the training in terms of that? Is it more for injury prevention and balance or more sports specific kind of stuff yeah i think that there's definitely a mixture of both in um in that anyway so i would term injury prevention tissue capacity works okay so if we if we look at the demands of jiu-jitsu so we just have to look at the postures and the positions that we spend a lot of time in then but what we what we need to do is we need to unwind those postures and we need to develop what we call structural balance so you know that if we do a lot of jiu-jitsu, we're going to spend a lot of time in flexion. We're going to spend a lot of time at thoracic flexion. We're going to spend a lot of time in a fetal position for the want of a better word. So then we have to spend some time in extension. So we have to work some thoracic extension. We have to look at unwinding those postures. So that's the first thing. Then we have to look at what the common injuries in BJJ are. Because in reality, the fastest way to regress with your training is to be injured because you're not spending time in the mats. So if we look at all those tactical, tactical, physical, and psychological components, the fastest way for them to regress is to be sitting on the outside looking in. So then we do this tissue capacity work to make sure that we have the robustness 
that will match the demands of what we meet on the mats. Now, we have to appreciate that there's some things we can't quantify and we can't predict injuries. You know, this has been tried time and time again to devise injury predictive models. We can't predict injuries. That's 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 an impossibility. However, what we can do is we can look at what the common re- what the what the research tells us, or more important, our evidence from participating in the sport, which is even more important, especially in a sport like BJJ, which is not studied that much. Okay, mm. and then yeah. we look at building capacity in those structures so that we can tolerate the demands on the mat, and then appreciate that it's a chaotic environment when we roll especially in competition, and some injuries are just going to happen. And that's that's the nature of the beast, and we have to accept that as well. And in jiu-jitsu, a lot of the injuries are come from overuse injuries, really. Like most of the people that I've seen, even when they get a big serious injury, it kind of comes as a result of the overuse injury. And I think that's from the chasing the skill. Like you, you can't do enough skill training, so you're always going, 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 and then you just get bad overuse injuries that then lead to, to worse issues. So what would you say to someone who feels like they're overtraining? But I know I felt this way. Sometimes I knew I was overtrained, but I kind of just had to get on with it and try and get the skill in because there's other people that are doing even more than me. And I guess that's how that that's how we plan our training, right? So first and foremost, if we strip it back and, you know, I don't want to get into too much on periodization or anything like that, because all periodization is, it's just a fancy term that's used to describe how we plan and lay out our training. It's as simple as that. that. That's what it is. So then we have to realize that there are two really important components that we have to be aware of, and that's volume and intensity. So volume can be measured in many ways. So in BJJ, we could just measure time on the mats. Okay. And then intensity, we could measure that as actual rolling because they're, the you know, or you could use an RPE scale. How hard was that session? So you could say from one to 10, so you subjectively measure how hard that was. So a 10 out of 10 was, I am wiped. You don't want to go there that much. But then a 7, an 8, or a 9 is a really tough session. And then you know that from maybe a 6 down might just be a drilling or a rolling, or not even a rolling, but a drilling session or a technique session. So we yeah. know that, okay, if we do a high volume of 8s, 9s, 10 of work, then we're pushing and we're overreaching. And we have to appreciate that if we're overreaching for a substantial amount of time, we actually need to recover so we can get the adaptations to whatever stimulus we're driving. Okay, that's really, really important. And I think that that's, it's the marriage of volume and intensity that people, people get wrong. And I think that, you know, it's probably a societal thing. We think that, you know, we have to crush it in the gym. We have to crush it with weights. We have to crush it outside of that. And we're just being, I guess, programmed to overconsume in every aspect of our lives. You know, yeah. you put on Netflix now, you don't wait for the next one. You just watch a box set in a couple of hours, you know. So it's it's there. We just tend to overconsume. And, and I get it. And we really have to protect the honest athletes as well, because an honest athlete will generally nearly always overtrain. So it's a case of having, I suppose, a relatively well-designed training plan and realizing that some days can be high days, and some days have to be low days. And the high days are high and the low days are low. So a high day may be, you know, just rolling, actively rolling for a set amount of time. And of course, then within this, and this is where BJJ is a little bit different to other sports, if you're a high-level black belt, 
your low day could be rolling with everyone in the gym because you sh- you could be so superior to all those other athletes that could still be a low day and for you not, not i'm just saying hypothetically speaking to for, for that high level black belt then they need to be aware that okay we can't undertrain so we have to get a stimulus from some standpoint so i don't think there's there's one golden rule to it i think that it's it's athlete's own intuition how they're feeling you know realizing that yes it's important to to overreach from time to time but we do have to recover and recover hard and it's you know because like there's there's a lot going on with the sport of bjj you know there's there's a massive cognitive component to it i always say this like any field sport athlete in the off season i'd always encourage them to go and do bjj and learn what it's like to play human chess with someone and not just roll and grapple with someone but you know really go with a high level bjj player who'll essentially play chess with you and will give you a position and you will learn what it's like to manip- be manipulated and vice versa. And it's, there's a tremendous learning in that. And where does rest fit into all this then? Because sometimes it's not talked about as much how important it is. But I noticed myself, like when I gave up college after a couple of years of studying out there, I didn't train anymore, but my rest like doubled. Like I got mm. an hour or two extra sleep a night. I was able to relax in between sessions. I wasn't cycling to and from college. So I was doing the same training volume, but my rest doubled and my level just increased more than it ever has before. And that's kind of when I realized, oh, this rest thing is no joke. It's actually part of the training, maybe. Yeah, it's key. I suppose the thing is, everyone goes looking for 99%. And what I mean by that is, you know, what I would regard as being a 99% is, you know, sleep, good nutrition, good hydration. There are your three. Then mindset. And what I mean by that is if you're locked into a consciousness of negativity and self-loathing, then no recovery program, no nutrition program, no sleep protocol is ever going to serve you because that's your conscious state. So thoughts become things. So if you think you're tired or you think you're sick, invariably you're going to be tired and sick. Whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, you're probably right. And that's what uh, an old Henry Ford quote. But that's the 99%. And that's what I feel everyone should go after. However, the 1% foam rolling, contrast therapy, isolation tanks, they're only the 1%. But people tend to gravitate towards them because they're sexy and because they're gimmicky. But in reality... If you're not hitting the 99% first, and if you're not doing a really good job at being having a positive mental mindset, getting eight to nine hours clean sleep, which is really, really important. I don't mean, you know, going into bed with your phone turned on, and I'm not going to speak about that because that's been done to death. But in reality, the research is very clear that the, what you do for the 15 minutes before you go to sleep sets the intention for your sleep. So... Practicing gratitude is really, really important there because if you can, you know, just, and I don't mean, you know, I'm grateful for X, Y, or Z. It could be just remembering a good part of your training. It could be a victory you had. It could be a technique that you learned that you pulled off in a, during a role and thinking about it and writing it down and how it made you feel and sleep on that thought. 
and then the quality of your sleep, or it could be a family thing, whatever emotion is a positive emotion to you, that will allow you to have a deeper, more fulfilled sleep than if you're sitting down watching, you know, crime scene investigation before you go to bed and your last thoughts are, you know, of a double homicide and whatever it is, or or if you're on if you're on your phone just aimlessly scrolling, or even worse, you're negatively going to you're negatively thinking going to bed. So you're thinking about your problems. And we all know that you don't sleep well when you have stuff in your mind. You know, so we know this. We've experienced this. So that's why I think that that that's really important as well. Breath work is really good before you sleep. Just getting into that parasympathetic state, no matter what it is, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's in vogue like Wim Hof. It could be just, you know, simply box breathing three seconds in, three seconds out. Reading is good um, because, again, it just changes your conscious thought. Okay, praying, like what's praying? Praying is a request to the subconscious, whether you're religious or not. That's what it is. That's what meditation is. So people have done this for generations, for for millennial, but nowadays we think that we have to have a whoop watch to tell us that we're recovered, or you know, it's or we, we we you know, it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily work like that. I think that if we can just go back to what got us here in the first place, and yeah, we came from tough stuff, and then the one percents are great if the ninety nine percents are really well looked after. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting idea. The effect that your mindset can have on your recovery and your training and everything because i actually remember years ago we were chatting after training and this this is one little thing that really stuck with me and i think we were talking about being at the gym and people who are kind of on their phone in between sets and listening to music and distracted on their runs and stuff and you were telling me that the mind and the body are the same thing mm-hmm. you know that that connection is so strong and if your mind isn't there then how can your body really be there properly you know yeah and yeah that always stuck with me and then i would kind of not rely on outside things like listening to music at the tournament before i'd compete and all these different things but i guess what would be some practical ways that you could improve that because even i'm aware of that stuff and still sometimes i get in the negative loop and you're right like i would feel the effect on my recovery and my training i think journaling is a tremendous tremendously useful tool and I, I don't mean like, and again, these things have gone really gimmicky, okay? They've gone yeah. really gimmicky and you can buy these expensive journals. It's just a copybook, you know? And, and yeah, that's all it is. It just needs to be a blank piece of paper and just write what's write what's on your mind. And I think that's really useful. And, and spending time where you're doing nothing. Like, I'll give you an example. My, my grandfather was the blacksmith here in the town I'm from. And I remember I'd call to my grandfather when I was about 15 or 16 and I'd just call over to the house to make sure he was all right and, you know, just make sure yeah. we check in on him. And I remember there'd never be a television on, but the fire would be lighting. And we could spend 20 minutes looking at the flames of the fire and there'd be no conversation. And it only struck me later in life that that was meditation. That was That was his type of mindfulness or meditation. And there's actually something very... I guess, primal about fire, just looking at fire. And um, there's another technique that I remember doing is called the heart of the rose. And it's just having a look at a rose and really studying the individual petals and seeing the individual beauty from petal to petal and 
the different mm-hmm. colors and the variations in colors. And th- like someone said this to me, I forget who actually told me about that practice. And I kind of was a little bit skeptical and then I started to do it. And then what I noticed was all around me in everyday life, I was starting to appreciate the beauty and everything. And I know that might sound a little bit airy fairy, but that to me is what awareness is. And like awareness is possibly the most important human skill. Any athlete, father, husband, human, coach, brother, sister, cousin, anyone can have. Awareness, like we all know someone who doesn't have good self-awareness. You know what I mean? We all know that person who doesn't have a filter, right? So having emotional awareness, having the self-awareness, having awareness on the mats, having awareness of your own body, having awareness of your own training, having awareness of your own thought process, that is a tremendously valuable skill. And I think that journaling will definitely shine a light on that. And then practices like, you know, just, and I hate to use the word because it's a buzzword, but just mindfulness, just spending time thinking about nothing. It's amazing. Like we can't do that. That's bananas to think we actually can't spend time to think about nothing without having to have a phone to tell us to do it. Yeah. I'm not really bored as much anymore. Like a few years ago, I just had a crap phone and I would never use it. Like I would never have it on me. You know, it was never in my pocket. It would be upstairs, whatever. The battery lasted about 10 minutes on the thing, (laughs) but I was super bored for like a week or two. And I started playing chess. And then two years later, I kept doing it and I got obsessed with it. And I was actually getting pretty good at chess, you know. And if I didn't have that boredom feeling, I would have never. Yeah. And like, there you go, even chess. And this is a conversation I had with 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 a rugby coach lately. And um, we were speaking about what activities we could give players to improve their mental capacities. And chess came up. and And I would regard... BJJ as human chess because what you do is on a very individual basis you learn the consequences of a bad decision very very quickly right and you're processing all those different positions and that different outcomes and different moves that you can do 100% so if someone was to say to me quantify just come back to your opening question quantify the percentage of you know, I suppose, capacity in terms of its importance in a pie chart, physical, technical, tactical, or psychological to BJJ, I would I would contend that the technical, the tactical, and the psychological far outweigh the physical. And the ironic thing is most beginners overemphasize the physical. Is there a way to keep in mind or to develop maybe creativity while you're training? A lot of the best performances I've had one of the main ways I would describe them is I was creative. You know, I was relaxed, open. I was, you'd nearly be inventing moves in the middle of your matches, you know. But then when I would be thinking, how can I develop that in training? I'd be trying different things, but I don't know if there's any set ways that I've found to work on it. I was wondering what your experience was with things like that. Yeah, that it's really interesting, again, because I think that this is what we're losing Definitely in mainstream sport, we're losing a thing called instinct. Okay. I I think like when you look at any sport, the best players will play at a very primal, pure level as a child. So if we look at soccer, it's, you know, kids in Brazil will play futsal with bloody pig's bladders on the ground in a crowded street with 40 players where there's no space. And we know that the field sport is 
essentially a game of either compressing or closing space. You have a fixed space. You've, if it's soccer, you have 22 players on the field. The goal is to create space in one position and compress it in another. And when you play um, futsal with 40 other kids in the street, you're going to know what it's like to manipulate and create space. And mm. you play with instinct. And this is, you know, where we now have a very structured, we'll say, a systems approach to how we develop athletes. And we have this in BJJ to a point as well in terms of, you know, a grading system and syllabuses and so forth. You know, you have to, well, I know some systems have that way, but sometimes we flirt with losing instinct. And the other part of that is, and I know I've referenced children, but this is my observation, and I think it applies to all sport. The person who's emotionally invested the most is generally always going to be the high performer. What I mean by that is, if you look at 20 children on a green in a housing estate playing soccer, you'll see the emotion. You'll see how they're invested in that game of soccer. And winning is winning and losing is losing. And they'll fight and they'll argue. But they're playing again the following day. And they're playing yeah. again the following day. And I think that there's a tremendous benefit to being emotionally invested. You'll also see a child who their parents are bringing them to training. And, and you know that child doesn't want to be there, really. You know, And invariably, that child stops playing in three or four years' time because there's no emotional investment. So I think that you know it comes down to instinct and it comes down to your emotional investment. And the other side that you do get with BJJ is it comes down to your training partners as well. Let's call it spade a spade. If you're, you know, if you're training with someone who's very closed, doesn't want to make mistakes, has a very fixed game, which is also tied to their mindset, then it's going to be very hard to flow and it's going to be very hard to work on instinct. But if you have someone who's just flowing with a role and, you know, who's open to the process of getting caught with something, then these things happen. I definitely noticed anyway recently a lot of the best guys in the world they're very creative it's tempting as well at the moment because the sport's growing there's more trends of what the meta moves are so you know you have your two or three moves that you have to be a master of on top you have your two or three positions on the bottom that you have to be a master of but then I just noticed myself getting caught up in trying to master those positions and I'm glancing over then as you were saying like skipping out on the intuition bit which I think is probably one of the the qualities that I would naturally have more than some of the other ones. So I'll definitely try and keep that in mind while I'm training. Sometimes I would almost feel like I'm wasting the training session when I'm just floating around and being too creative, but I'm not sure. It's hard to get the balance right, like, isn't it? It is hard to get the balance right, definitely. And I, I, I think I always remember, I always like to make comparisons and I'm very sensitive to hindsight. And now that I'm not rolling or I'm not actively training anymore, I don't, I won't always, but I've often reflected on my time training and how disrupted it was at times because I had the wrong focus. And if I look at, for example, oh, like a field sport like soccer, you can break soccer down into moments. So you're either defending, a team is attacking, they're either transitioning from attack to defense or transitioning from defense to attack. So... There are four game moments and those four game moments drive behaviors. And I often look back at BJJ and I'm thinking, would there, would, would I, or could I have had a richer experience and a more successful experience? Had I applied a model like that to my initial learning where I, these are 
three to four defensive principles, but then I can transition from a defensive position to attacking position. Then I'm attacking, but then I also must be re- I must realize that the person can counterattack me. So then I'm transitioning from attack back to defense, if that makes sense. Now I I I could be overcomplicating this, but it has come to my mind, you know, over the last couple of years. And um I think then once you have certain amount of principles from each one of those moments, you can start to develop your game. Or you could have, I could have started to develop my game. And then when it comes to like having fun in training, it's something that's probably looked over a good bit. But I was wondering, like, what's the coach's responsibility or the leader of the training's responsibility to keep it fun for the athletes? Because sometimes I've seen people, when you lose the fun aspect, especially in the last year when class sizes are a lot smaller and you lose a bit of the camaraderie and stuff, Mm -hmm. when you lose the fun aspect, I feel like you don't get the same improvement from the training, you know? Yeah. Like, first of all, we're social creatures you know um everyone wants to feel part of something bigger than themselves and feel part of a group and feel part of a club and you know that that's 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 really really important and with that comes fun and connectedness and in an individual sport that's even more important that you develop that because in reality if if you're coaching a bjj class or if you're participating in a bjj class and let's just say there's 20 people in the class well, then that's 20 individual people who have all come together for that one hour and a half and they've all left different things behind them. So some mm-hmm. could have mortgages, some could have relationship problems, some could have, you know, an asshole of a boss who's been on their case all day. Some people might, another person might be just up out of bed, you know, they might not even have a job. Other people could be students. So you have this convergence of expectations, needs, and once and the one thing that can draw them all together is energy because mm-hmm. i think we and again this is something that again in in my listen to me i i love science i most a lot of my practices you know what i mean deeply rooted in research and evidence-based but what what we don't do well is we we overlook the softer skills of coaching and we definitely overlook the importance of energy okay so like what's emotion? Emotion is just energy in motion. So if you as a coach can transfer positive energy and a bit of fun, then it just drops those anxiety levels for people who come in day one. Like when you spoke about a flow state, like to me, flow is this. If you walk into a class and all of a sudden you're a blue belt and you're surrounded by black belts, and you're the only blue belt, well, then straight away, you're going to be pushed into a state of anxiety, right? You're going to be anxious before you even mm-hmm. hit the mats because you know you're way out of your depth, okay? If you walk into a class and you're a black belt and you've 20 white belts, well, then straight away, you're going to be, you're going to be bored. So yeah. at one end of the spectrum, you have anxiety, and the other end of the spectrum, you've boredom. Somewhere in the middle is a flow state. That's where you're reaching and repeating at the edge of your abilities, you're not nailing every technique. You're not, you're not passing every move. You're not, you're, you're making mistakes. However, you're within the bounds of you get one, you miss one. You get two, you miss one. And that's where I feel a flow state actually starts to develop. And that's, that's where it's hard in BJJ because, you know, you have such a mixed level of abilities in many classes and 
you know, let's call a spade a spade. Someone could be, I remember you when you were a white belt and you started rolling, like from the first two to three times you rolled, it was very evident that, you know what I mean? You had a, an unbelievably high level of skill acquisition and you were one of these people who could just do a technique and nail it in, in, you know, you could just learn something and all of a sudden you're bringing it to life on the mats. And, you know, so the, all these things, I suppose, kind of converge together. But that's to me what a flow state is. That's it's somewhere in the middle there. And then as a coach, it's trying to find that those synergies. If someone is getting crushed, roll after roll after roll after roll, energy drops, starts to get demotivated. And why do most people fall out of the sport? Probably for that reason. They just probably, they don't see the progress. Um, you know, even if they do stay to blue belt, they just see the gap to purple belt as being so big and the journey being so long that in their eyes, the juice isn't worth the squeeze and they and they stop at that point. So I think that, that that's really important. And I can bring this back to a field sport scenario. If I put 20 people on a line, I know the most demotivated people are going to be the people who know they're going to be last and the people who know they're going to win. You know, but the people in the middle are going to be motivated. So a lot of it is just about grouping people of similar abilities and hopefully similar mindsets, because then you don't manipulate emotion to the same degree. And, you know, the fun comes in the experience then. That's probably why the specific training has worked for me so much over the over the years, because it would be most of the people would be kind of a much lower experience level. But you can get them up to a high level in a specific position very quickly. And then it's actually a big challenge for me. Like some of the most difficult people that I've had to roll with have been blue belts because we just worked on specific positions so much. So they're like one of the best people in the world at that position, you know. So that's Very definitely something that I kind of added into the training. Just kind of naturally, you know, I wouldn't even be thinking about it from a purely scientific type. I would just be trying out different training methods and whatever ones would kind of work. Because it's just when you really want to be good at all costs, you'll kind you'll just try everything out and keep what works, you know. Yeah, as Bruce Lee once said, you absorb what's useful, you discard what's not, isn't that it? Smart man, that Bruce Lee. Wasn't he? But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to then, because you're someone who works with a lot of full-time athletes and also part-time athletes who are like competing at a very high level, especially like with the GAA, a lot of those guys have full-time jobs and they're still competing almost as a professional. So how would you change around their training program or help them with their schedule or recovery of different things? for someone who's more of a part-time grappler or competitor or something. That's again, really individual because you have to take all these lifestyle and external factors. Cause like, first of all, we must realize stress is stress. So mm. the body doesn't differentiate between different types of stress. So if you have a block layer or a farmer who is physically manually working all day, okay, that's a stress mm. on the body. So therefore, you have to account for that when it comes to their training load, okay? Conversely, you could have a new father or a new mother who mm -hmm. is now getting six hours sleep, probably dealing with a whole new chapter in their life, and that's stress. And the body mm -hmm. doesn't differentiate from that and training stress. It just sees it as an accumulation of stress. So this is where having a player-centered approach or an athlete-centered approach to a coaching philosophy is really, really important. So you sit down with the athlete and you take into account every aspect of their lives. And then from there, you plan and you, I suppose, 
lay out a methodology that suited that athlete. And like, if you look at GA, for example, it's a quasi-professional environment at the elite level. Uh, but there's a lot of supports. You know, you there's nutritionists, there's sports psychologists, there's, you know, dinner after training, you know, there's lots and lots of supports. But the reality is most of those athletes are school teachers who are off for three or four months of the year or finished early in the evenings. You know, you don't have the days of someone having a manual um, job plus being, you know, a high level GA athlete is gone. It's just gone. You won't do it anymore. So, so it's, it's, it's a very individual thing. And when you look, you just have to sit back and look at the individual athlete, look at the demands on that person. Like, I remember a thing we done one time with a team I was involved in. Um, I had an appreciation day. And if I was actually brought into a BJJ gym uh, tomorrow morning, it would be one of the first things I'd do. So an appreciation day is where all the athletes would cook a breakfast for their partner. So all the partners come together and the athletes organize, cook, serve, and host the event. And it's their appreciation for the people who are around them, who are supporting them every day. Because behind every athlete is someone. There's someone there. You know, and it might be a young athlete who's 16 or 17, and it could be a mother or a father who's driving them to training or who's, you know what I mean, cleaning their clothes. Or it could be, you know, a male 40-year-old who has three kids and there's a partner at home who's helping with, you know, minding the kids when they're gone training. And that appreciation day does two things. Number one, it's a public expression of gratitude, okay? And in my experience, if you can get the people who are around the athletes on side, then you're on a, you're on a winner. You're on a winner, you know? It's really, really important. And it's not like you're doing it in a Machiavellian type way that, it's not, you know, it's, it's not about that. You're just, it's, it's an, a level of appreciation so that when they go home, there's no additional stress. There's mm-hmm. no additional stress. And the second thing is, it you know, it builds a bit of camaraderie and a bit of a bond among these people. So now all of a sudden, could you imagine a scenario where while you're at training with someone else, your partners are having a coffee? That's just a load off your mind now. You know, that, you know, and they're relaxing, they're having a coffee, they're doing, they're gone for lunch, they're doing a bit of shopping, whatever it is. And now your time is freed up to train. And like for some people, that's a given because they have their freedom. But in reality, it comes to every athlete at some part of their life where they, they reach different junctures in their life where they have to deal with these things. So as a coach, the more you can appreciate these things and the more of a connection you can build with not just the athletes, but the people that support them, it's like a rope. And connection is like the layers of a rope. The thicker those strands are, then the more you can stretch the athlete. And if, they're, if you don't have that connection with the athlete and the people around them, then you don't start tugging at that rope from day one because that relationship will snap. It's funny how much everything really is connected, like even going back to the mind-body thing and having no stress outside. It really is all connected into trying to find like that perfect performance, I suppose. It's not yeah. all just about train, 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 you know? No, no. And and it's, it's you know, we think like physiology is easy. You know, mm. I don't even present this kind of data back to players unless they really go looking for it because there was a time in my career where you improve someone's vertical jump height and you think you've done a good job and Mm. 
the reality is it's not a hard thing to do. It's physiology and it's it's basic program design and it's adherence of an athlete and you're going to get the adaptations. To me, that focus on those individual components, they don't really make that big a difference in the grand scale of things. No, I've never seen the fittest athlete being the best athlete. Like I've never seen, if you go to the gym tomorrow morning and you start rolling and if you do a fitness test, whatever fitness test you might decide to do, I bet you that's not going to be the best grappler. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. You see this in field sport, like the, the fittest person is never the, the, the best player. You know, the best player or the best athlete is the person who has combined those four coactive components I've spoken about. And they get the stuff outside their life right as well. And all this marries and merges together and it just becomes, I guess it becomes a, a result of all of them. And for someone who wants to look more into maybe improving those different areas or for some good examples, would there be any other sports that you think people are doing things right a bit more or any other kind of resources maybe that people could look at? Or Yeah, I, I think so. See, the, when you look at the movement demands of some sports, some sports teach good movement. Whenever I'm looking at a sport, there's a couple of considerations. So first of all is the dimension of the space you have to work in. Okay, so take tennis. Tennis is a fantastic sport because... It, you have a, a set space, you're building rotational capacities that generally we don't get in a lot of our activities because they're very sagittal plane, forward and backwards. And you, again, spend a lot of time in a little bit of flexion. You get to open up when you serve, so you get extension. There's a nice, I just think there's a nice combination of movements um, so I think tennis is a great sport. BJJ is another great sport. Um, swimming is another fantastic sport because now all of a sudden, if you suck at swimming, you need to be fit. But then it's kind of like the reverse. If you're actually a good swimmer, doing f- swimming for fitness is actually not that beneficial because you're getting more efficient at it. You know, yeah, yeah. Of course, obviously you can get faster and, and stuff like that, but there's limitations to that as well. Um, and then, yeah, I, like chess, you touch on chess. I think chess are phenomenal. Um, fantastic sport as well. And as, as you know, I love juggling. I think juggling is a, is a great teacher as well because juggling isn't about juggling because, you know, you can't change physically without changing mentally. What I mean by that is no one picks up three balls and juggles them for the first time doesn't happen and i've probably juggled with a thousand people thousands even so juggling is a lesson in failure you start with two you work to three and you persevere and it's a signature of perseverance and then after a certain length of time you got three balls so you go through a process of learning to deal with failure getting over it eventually hitting three balls most people stop at three you know they don't venture to four five and six but having that three ball juggle is it's not about eye-hand coordination or spatial awareness or depth perception. Not to me, it's not. It's about the mental shift that goes towards actually learning the skill. If anyone wants to find out more about you or your training philosophies, where could they catch you if you have a website or anything? Yeah, I do indeed, Tom. So it's just adrianobrien.ie, A-D-R-I-A-N, O'Brien.ie. I'm not on Twitter. 
Uh, I am, but I don't actively. Um, I think Better off. Might, yeah, I don't bother with it. I'm not on Facebook either. Uh, I am, but again, I, I've deleted the app for a little bit of headspace. But I am on Instagram, yeah. so it's just Agent O'Brien. I am, I pop a couple of bits on Instagram every now and then. I need to up my social game, I suppose, but um, <laughs> I'm busy enough. Well, thanks a million for coming on the show. Anyway, that was a really interesting one, and it was good to catch up about different ideas throughout the years from training and improving and everything. Absolutely, Tom. It was great to catch up, boss. Anytime nice. at all. Big thanks to Adrian for coming on the show. I really like Adrian's down-to-earth approach to coaching, and his biggest emphasis is always on skill development, which is so important for the sport of jiu-jitsu. And it's always nice to talk about interesting ideas like creativity and intuition as well. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, make sure you share it with your friends. And don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. We'll be back next week with another great guest. So until then, Slánagas Bánacht.